Hello and welcome to F1 in Review. As ever, I'm here with Liv, Tristan and Angus to discuss the major talking points from the first British Grand Prix of 2020. Similarly to the race, if you haven't enjoyed the start of this podcast, don't be too hasty in switching over. It gets much more exciting towards the end, I promise. <laughs> joke. I don't get it. Uh, I mean, don't switch over. Uh, no, shut up. Sebastian Vettel's gone into Max Verstappen, and under braking, Leclerc has gone into the barriers at the penultimate turn. Perez ahead of Stroll, ahead of Ricardo behind. Oh, it's a tight finish. It's a photo finish, adding another championship to his collection. It's Lewis Hamilton, champion of the world. Okay, so let's start off with the tyres. Um, after the late drama of this British Grand Prix, Lando Norris has stated that F1 is in a, quote, bad position thanks to the use of Pirelli tyres at Silverstone. While Norris himself finished in fifth place of this Grand Prix, these comments come after Hamilton, Bottas and Carlos Sainz pitted from the positions of first, second and fifth on the laps of 13 and 14 respectively under the safety car for hard tyres, with each driver expecting these tyres to see them out until the end of the race. This in real terms being 39 laps and 38 laps. Uh, Spoiler alert, they did not see them out whatsoever. Uh, While Hamilton successfully limped home to a first place a mere 5.9 seconds ahead of Max Verstappen after his front left burst, he was on three tyres by the end but still was able to clinch the victory, Bottas fell to 11th place after a pit stop because of the the failure of the tyres, and Carlos Sainz fell all the way back from 5th to 13th. All drivers here being afflicted by the same problem of the tyres. In reaction to these events, Norris said, even on lap one, you can't push as much as you want. If you use that understeer on lap one, you get graining on the tyres. You're just in this bad position where you can't race as much as you want and you end up having a problem like a lot of people today. He continued to say, Silverstone and the front left tyres are not friends, never have been. But nowadays, F1 with the loads that we put on the front left, it just makes it harder for everybody. What do we make of these comments from Lando Norris? Do you think that Pirelli and Silverton are incompatible as he suggests? Or do you believe that ultimately Lando is clutching at straws? After all, only three cars, as I mentioned, were directly affected by this issue. They did lap, they did pit on lap 13 and their garages did expect these tyres to last for a whopping 39 and 38 laps. I, would, mm, I wouldn't say that he's clutching at straws because three cars being afflicted by these problems is still three more than... like The, the, the amount of races we see where there are zero cars which come down with race-ending punctures, or not race-ending, but race-affecting punctures, that is definitely more than what we usually see. But I wouldn't say that the two things, Pirelli and Silverstone, are um, incompatible because they've managed to produce tyres for the circuit in the past. It is admittedly a challenge. Um, if you consider the all the fast right-hand corners, high-speed right-hand corners, which would place a high demand on the front left tyre, which is obviously we saw come to fruition with the punctures on the weekend. But I think that's just... That's just the, that's just how the circuit works. It's going to inevitably place more of a demand on tyres, and if it's up to Pirelli to uh, produce tyres which are more robust and more sort of able to cope with the demands of the circuit, then if they're able to do that, I wouldn't say that makes the two incompatible. Don't know why Lando's complaining. To be honest, he still came in fifth place. So um, if I was him, I'd be pretty happy with it. I get the fact that he's probably a bit annoyed that he couldn't 
uh, maybe push as hard as he wanted to. It seems to me that this is going back to the question that we've raised a couple of times before in this podcast, which is whether or not Pirelli should be manufacturing failures into the tyres. And I've said this once before, that F1 tyres are designed to go off a cliff at a certain point. Pirelli could manufacture tyres that lasted basically an entire race if they really wanted to, just get a harder and harder compound. There would be obvious trade-offs. However, they don't do that because we like a spectacle and we like the fact that the faster you can go on a tyre, the quicker it degrades. So you have this nice trade-off and um, you get more drama because pit stops are now the point where you get the most uh, entertaining points sometimes in a race. So given that the failures happened quite dramatically at the end of this race, Pirelli has said that they're launching a 360 degree investigation. I assume that means they're going to be looking at the entirety of the tyre instead of just a small portion of it. Many of the problems we found were because, as as Landon and Norris said, and we, we said just a minute ago, due to the extreme forces on the tyres, uh, if if you watched the race, there were the very nice graphics showed us that in certain sections of the course, you were getting g forces in excess of 5 g's it went up to some of 5.4 g's which is a massive amount of force acting on the car the driver and of course the tires which are are being rubbed off and degraded every second so do i think that lando norris is clutching at straws no i don't i think he doesn't just mean silverstone i think pirelli tires don't like any track because they manufacture these problems in however these problems have to be manufactured and put in because without them the tyres would last really long amount of time and we wouldn't have the drama from the pit stops. And so it's all about that balance. And unfortunately, what this means is in cases like the Silverstone Grand Prix, where you've got lots of high G-forces and it's really hot track, you're going to get these odd occasions where certain cars are just going to absolutely destroy their tyres. And I suppose it's for the other teams to take advantage of the of the failures of and bad luck of other teams. There's been plenty of races in the past and this hasn't occurred. I think really there was a number of key reasons why this happened when it did. Their pit stop was one of the biggest reasons for the strategy. So they all pitted a lot earlier than normal strategy would suggest, would encourage. And so that meant they were lasting far longer on those hard tyres that were um, struggling, as we know, at the end. So obviously that's a really key point. And that was um, that safety car obviously was due to um, Daniel Kvyat's um, crash. But another reason as well, of course, is the fact that there's been a significant increase in the pace of F1 cars, even just in the past year since we've been at Silverstone I think pole position this year was 1.2 seconds faster compared to 2019 so obviously that is um, in qualifying and it's not the same speed um, in the race however that is proof that the cars are going quicker and they are putting more pressure on the tyres every year so it's there's a number of factors um, to why they burst and I don't think it's just it just means, oh, parade tyres aren't good. I think it means that there was a number of contributing factors um, and may- maybe that was one of them. But you've got to remember, as you mentioned, the pressure on that left tyre at Silverstone is more than almost any other track. Combine it with the quicker cars, combine it with the early pit stop and you've got this issue. Um, I don't think it's a huge issue because Pirelli is still sticking to the softer tyres for this weekend. So clearly there's no major danger or big big worry because they wouldn't make that decision if it was if it was the wrong one has anyone seen how much damage was done to the mercedes car um hamilton's mercedes car by by running on three tires because i assume he's destroyed most of the suspension underfloor well i i read somewhere that on the last lap despite having a heavily punctured tyre. He still did 140 miles an hour down the high state, well. which, is, which is mad like i reckon if they had um 
crowds, they might want to black flag him because yeah. um, a full delamination would have meant that the forces on the front left then would have collapsed the suspension, which would have dug him into the ground. Which, if not only just for his own safety, but would have also destroyed. It could have destroyed other things. And it's a projectile of, of rubber that you're going to throw off into the sky. I mean, the amount of damage he did. Do you remember last year when? Um, was it at Monaco when when Leclerc his tire went and he ran round um, Monaco on a, on three tires, and they retired yeah, him because that that destroyed all of the suspension. It wrecked the underfloor. It uh, caused so much vibration that it destroyed the gearbox as well. It's funny though because on during that race Leclerc was similarly to Hamilton really going for it, and the fact that he accelerated and braked so heavily throughout the track actually resulted in his floor essentially breaking in two so mm. continuing what we're saying it's very interesting the similar thing didn't happen to hamilton because as anyone who's driven 140 miles an hour will know braking is not going to be a sort of a light and easy thing to do i'm surprised the fia didn't punish him for that because did his tire delaminate before he went past uh, the pit lane but as his tire was started delaminating as he like was going through the final corner yeah that's why he lost so much time whilst hamilton's only started delaminating at the end of the, the Wellington Strait, I think. So he was like thir- 30 seconds into the lap, which is also probably what, if he if he lost the tyre like a few seconds earlier, he wouldn't have won the race. I, are you allowed to win the race if you go through the pit lane and pass the chequered flag? So if Hamilton had gone, right, I'm coming in because this would have been his final lap of the race and he would have been forced to pit. And if he'd gone in and done 50 mile an hour to pass the chequered flag, would he have technically both pitted and won the race. Sorry, a small bit of F1 history that I have to have in my mind somehow. Uh, I think it was in the late, late 90s at, at Silverstone, I want to say. Um, Schumacher uh, was leading and Hakkinen was second. And Schumacher had like a drive-through penalty for speeding in the pit lane. But he didn't receive the penalty because it was a wet race. He changed tyres later on. He didn't receive the penalty till like the last five laps. And he crossed the finish line and took his drive-through and That's then won the race. That. And that then, and, then, and, and, he, and that, that, that was allowed to stand. He just crossed the line, and McLaren were like, hang on, he can't do that. And the FAA were like, well, technically, he can, so he kept the win. <laughs> I have a thing to add that makes, that makes this more, like, more legit what you're saying. There is a, a line, a finish line, in the pit lane. And I was watching the, it was either the Formula 4 or Formula 2, I think it was the Formula 3, um, race this weekend, just gone. And they, there was a safety car in the final laps, and so it was, the leader was doing well, but it was looking like it was just going to parade behind the safety car to, to win. And they, they found some debris on the main straight um, on the final lap, and so they decided to take it to finish them in the pit lane, so across the pit lane finish line. And the leader didn't, <laughs> didn't follow the safety car in because he thought the safety car was going in. But then he realised that it was they were finishing the race behind the safety car across the pit lane finish line, and he had to dive in and hit a bollard. <laughs> to get oh, no. Obviously, if he, he did get across the line first. But yeah, they the, the F2 or 3, I think it was 3, finished, literally finished their race in the pit lane across that line. So now I've said that, I'm thinking maybe you might be right. Maybe he may have been able to do it that way. Which I think he should have done. Although that would have cost him first place. Nah, because because the Silverstone pit lane like cuts the final corner, so he does, doesn't it? He would have like, mm. he, yeah, he would have got away with it. I think. I feel like keep some of this in because that's quite good. I think I'm going to keep all of it in. Excellent, including me saying keep that in. Here we go. Here we go. 
Here, here comes a big fat intro. Max Verstappen finished in second place at this British Grand Prix, just 5.9 seconds ahead of Lewis Hamilton after pitting on the penultimate lap of the race. Some in the Formula 1 community, including Sky Sports' Ted Kravitz, believes Red Bull Racing lost their chance to win the first race of the season. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting point that Ted Kravitz does bring up because whilst Verstappen did come in second and at the end of the day he finished ahead of Mercedes in Bottas who came out of the points in the end due to his puncture, there have been some who have said that Red Bull, due to the fact that they pitted on the penultimate lap to one of two reasons really, one, to save their own tyres and also two, to go for the fastest lap points. Um, based on the fact that Verstappen only finished five seconds behind Hamilton's ailing car at the end, it can be said, it could be argued, that they perhaps lost their chance at what could be a, a rare chance for a victory in this truncated 2020 season. I had a look at, sort of had a think about what possibly if Red Bull did lose this win. Um, if you look at the pit stops during the race, so only one pit stop occurred in the first 50 laps of the race for all the top three drivers and for the vast majority of the field. Um, that was at the end of lap 13, when the safety car was deployed due to Danny Kvyat's big impact into the barriers at Magus Beckett's. <clears throat> so the teams kind of knew before the race that it would be a one-stop before the race started, but at the same time, they perhaps didn't expect to have to do 40 laps on a set of tyres. As Tom mentioned earlier, Pirelli thought that 39, like around about 40 laps would be the limit for those tyres. Um, but those limits are typically when the drivers like do ultra ultra tire saving go into like ultra tire saving mode and do their absolute best to get the tires to the end of the race so doing 40 laps on a set of those tires was not an ideal scenario for these teams but i guess they looked at the strategy looked at the, the fact it was lap 13 at 52 and thought you know what we could feasibly get to the end on this um however one thing they perhaps didn't take into consideration is the fact that Silverstone as a circuit demands a lot on tyres. It's probably one of the most demanding circuits on the calendar in terms of tyres, um, especially on the front left. Uh, think of all the high-speed right-hand corners, uh, including the right-hander at Cops. We've also got some of the Maggots Beckett's corners, the first corner at Abbey, which is a, a flat-out right-hand uh, kink. Pirelli themselves, after the race, said that a combination of the high-speed corners that I just mentioned the fact that it was a long stint and also the increased speed that the Formula 1 cars have this year. That was another factor contributing to why the tyres punctured in the manner that they did. In terms of the picture of the race, so Bottas, after all these pit stops, the first 30-odd laps on the tyres were pretty smooth sailing. It was a typical picture you've seen in a race this year, which is the two Mercedes quite nip and tuck, pulling away slightly from Max Verstappen in third with the rest of the field a bit, a bit further behind. Bottas started complaining about the vibrations in his tire, left front tyre specifically on lap 41. The team told him to back off a bit and subsequently the gap between him and Hamilton increased from 2.7 seconds to 8.3 seconds between laps 41 and 49. And at this point Mercedes may have been thinking that okay, he's eased off a bit, should be able to get to the end of the race, it shouldn't be too much for Chor to do that. However, coming out the final corner at the end of lap 49 is the start of lap 50. He suffered a left front puncture um, he then ha ended up having to do a whole lap on three wheels, effectively. A massive, massive blow to his race and arguably his championship hopes. Verstappen passed him near the start of the lap because he had closed in on him due to Bottas backing off because of the vibrations. <clears throat> Verstappen then pitted at the end of lap 50 to, like I said earlier, probably two reasons. They thought that they'd want to save the tyres 
and make sure that the same fate that happened to Bottas did not happen to them. And at that stage, they, could, they would have been justifiably supported when they, if they would have said, we probably won't be winning this race. He was 13 seconds behind Hamilton. To make that up in two laps would be impossible. And also the, uh, the incentive of the fastest lap point was there for Verstappen. So it's easy to see why uh, they brought him in. Christian Horner said after the race that his, the front left tyre itself had 50 cuts in it, 5-0 cuts in it. So again, that's not surprising that they managed to... Um, like wanted to bring him in because the failure that he could have possibly um, suffered from would have been as catastrophic as the Mercedes in the final two laps. Um, and that would almost certainly have dropped him into at least the lower reaches of the points and possibly out the points completely, like Bottas uh, suffered from. And it makes sense they made this decision because at the time, if you, if you look at it from a Constructors' Championship point of view, yes, they're unlikely to be challenging Mercedes for that particular title this year, but Alex Albon was down in 10th place was only on course to score one point, so it's not surprising that Red Bull were probably thinking, okay, we'll take these 18 points, we'll move on and try and win some other races in the future. On a tra- Especially with this race this weekend having been on a track where Mercedes were expected to excel, and they certainly did, shown by their advantage in qualifying and their relative ease with which they were controlling the race. Um, Red Bull, I would say, were proven right in the fact that there were some who were saying that it was just it could have been just a Mercedes-related issue that they were struggling uh, with their tyres. If you think of, um, for example, the issue they had in Austria with the kerbs unsettling their gearboxes, there have been proven examples in the past of cars um, that run over kerbs too much, managing to that manages to puncture holes in the tyres. So whilst some suggested that it might have been just a Mercedes-related issue of running over the kerbs, that was not to be the case, as shown by the fact that Science as well suffered his front-left puncture. On lap 51, a similar, very similar failure um, to the both Mercedes cars. Hamilton had been relatively comfortable all race. He'd, I say relatively comfortable, he led every lap. And uh, the gap uh, over Bottas had never been below a second pretty much throughout the whole race, other than during the safety car periods. And he wasn't having the vibration issues that Bottas was having. So it was always going to be his race to lose. It was only ever going to be Red Bull's race to profit from if Mercedes had a problem. The fact that Red Bull did not also, did not win the race has to be, in my opinion, uh, considered a massive slice of luck, and in in terms of luck that Red Bull could not affect the events of. The fact that Bottas' tyre blew up coming out the final corner onto the pit straight, meaning he he had to do the whole lap on three wheels, and meant he'd lost 59 seconds to Hamilton on that lap 50. If the same thing had happened to Hamilton, then Verstappen would have easily won the race, but the fact that Hamilton's tyre only uh, got punctured at the end of the Wellington straight, about 30 seconds into the lap, meant that Hamilton had less of a lap to do and subsequently only lost about 29, 30 seconds to the chasing Verstappen. So it's just the fact that Hamilton's tyre blew up in a more beneficial place, which meant that, that he managed to win the race and get over the line. It's just the fact that in that case, Red Bull's uh, luck wasn't on Red Bull's side. So I think it would be incredibly harsh to say that Red Bull lost the win. They were only, in my opinion, they were only ever in a position to profit from misdemeanors or bad luck for Mercedes or, or their mistakes. Ted Kravitz can say, and everyone can say, you know, they, they could have won this. Even with, you know, the, the data coming in from the tyres, hearing about Bottas's, um, the blistering on both Bottas, uh, Bottas's and Hamilton's tyres, there's no way that Red Bull could have... Tr- truly expected that as the exact outcome that's just life you never know the exact outcome and so I think I think they couldn't risk Max's tyres going we heard about those cuts and those blistering on his tyres 
you can't risk your your lead driver's tyres going and leading leaving it all down to Albon, who, as you say, was in tenth at the time. Obviously, he managed to get up to eighth through the um, the, the issues with the Mercedes and Science car. But at the end of the day, Albon at, at the time was in tenth, and that's not enough for a team that wants to challenge for the championship. So, getting that second place or that third, if, if Bottas's tyres had continued, would still would have been a solid result for them and far better than losing both drivers out of the points and getting nothing. So I, I don't think that there was any issues or any mistakes made. Yeah, and no, I think that's a pretty solid analysis from uh, both of you because imagine what happened if Red Bull hadn't pitted Max and then his tyres went out on the last lap as he was chasing down Hamilton. Then Ted Kravitz would have said, "Ah, oh, if only they'd they'd pitted." There is a it's a reason it's hindsight, but they can't possibly say that. And as you rightly said, Angus, the fact of the matter is, is the Mercedes only won that because they were so fast. I can't think of many teams that can lose a tire on the last lap and be so far ahead that it won't make a blind bit of difference. And it didn't make a blind bit of difference. Hamilton was just super duper quick. And I felt sorry for Bottas because his sort of blew at the wrong time. And perhaps, yes, you might say that um, Hamilton was, was a bit more lucky because he his tyres went at the right time. But he controlled the race. He was so far ahead. And that's even with the bunch-ups that's caused by the safety car. So I don't think, it, I don't think we can say that Red Bull lost the race because, they, as you said, I guess it was never theirs to win in the first place, perhaps. And they capitalised on it in a safe manner and got second place with Verstappen. So I think I think they did a pretty good job and I don't think they could risk those sort of points. Interestingly, because I think you're all being a bit lenient on Red Bull here. I mean, I'm not going to go as far to say that this was a race lost by Red Bull, but it, it certainly was a failure. After all, the Mercedes cars have both been on those sets of tyres for 39 laps. Pirelli has said the tyres shouldn't last this long, but let's not take their word for it exactly. I mean, looking back at prior examples, looking at history, it's clear that, as we've alluded to multiple times in this episode, Silverstone and the tyres are not friends, these Pirelli tyres. 2013 saw Sergio Perez have issues twice with his tyres in one weekend. Hamilton also had a failure during the race, as well as Felipe Massa. Fast forward to 2017, Raikkonen and Vettel have issues with their tyres after they pitted on lap 19. So, safety car or not, I think it's quite clear, I mean, it's easy for me to say now, but the fact that the Mercedes had pitted on lap 13, safety car or not, the odds were always against them. And people may disagree with what I'm about to say, it may be a bit blasé, um, somewhat of a sweeping statement, whatever, but I think that this constructors is already won by Mercedes. They have a 68 point gap from Red Bull, and Red Bull, in my opinion, are gonna finish second. They have a better car than McLaren and have a 27 point gap um, for good measure. So I'm wondering why the racing, the, the Red Bull racing team decided, oh, let's go for the fastest lap. Let's get that one point. I see this, perhaps as being one of Max Verstappen's only chances or very few chances he's going to get to win a race. And it's fine for me to say this because I've got no affiliation with Red Bull, with Aston Martin, with anybody in the team, but why not go for broke? Because the Mercedes were at the mercy of Red Bull 
and the fact that they weren't able to pounce and throw the dice and be a bit more ruthless when they had the chance. After all, Paul DeResta, also a Sky Sports, said that ultimately Verstappen's tyres they believed would have lasted looking at the condition of them on the track. You've really got to see this as a kick in the teeth and an issue that Red Bull have to learn from going forward. Are we now going on to Hulkenberg? Yes. Can't believe his car didn't start. I've never seen that before. The odds of it. Honestly, I think it's sabotage. I don't think you're necessarily wrong. It just seems like that with any driver that could take the fact it was him is just laughable. But anyway. Well, did anyone have eyes on Magnussen? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate revenge. Well, so something, something else I got from Ted's notebook, as well as with uh, Racing Point Aston Martin. Apparently, they were going to announce uh, Vettel to Aston Martin this week. But then Checo got the illness. So imagine, imagine if they'd like got the virus, had to miss two races, and then been kicked out of the season <laughs> same week. <laughs> because, because there was like a, I, I don't know if you guys seen the video of Vettel and Lawrence Stroll doing like a fist bump yeah. in the paddock. Yeah, I've seen that. and I've seen yeah, that. apparently they've had to delay the announcement because it would have been a massive dick move to like kick Checo out of his seat <laughs> in the same week he's got the illness. That would just but sum yeah. up 2020, wouldn't it, really? In another universe, the F1 history books would read that the 1st of December 2019 was the final time Nico Hülkenberg competitively drove a Formula 1 car until at least the very early months of 2021. However, in this universe, the 32-year-old German would only have to take a 243-day hiatus from the sport thanks to the recent events at Racing Point, a constructor's Hülkenberg formerly raced for between 2011 and 2012, and again between 2014 and 2016, when they are formally known as Force India. Liv, I believe you've been keeping an eye on these truly unique and bizarre events for everybody associated with the Pink Panthers and their former employee. I have, yeah. So, back on Thursday afternoon, uh, Sergio Perez, along with everyone involved in Formula One and in the paddock over the weekend, took their COVID-19 test as normal, as planned. But out of the thousands that took place, only one came back positive, and unfortunately it was Sergio Perez. Uh, it was actually inconclusive at first. I don't know if that was just to put off the media for a little, little while, but then it did come out as positive. He'd actually been to visit his ill mother um, in Mexico, but he was certain that he had stuck by all the recommended precautions, and the team did support him in saying they believed that he hadn't done anything wrong. Nonetheless, he was positive. He has COVID-19, not showing many symptoms, but he was told he must isolate for seven to 10 days. This was a little bit vague and it still is because of government guidelines. They, um, the British government recently changed the isolation period to 10 days, but we're unsure whether this will count for F1 drivers and those involved in the sport. But nonetheless, he would not be able to race in the, in the first British Grand Prix. So the big issue then was who would drive the RP20, the racing point car, um, you have, you know, everyone started talking about who was available. You have the Mercedes and Racing Point reserves of Stoffel van Dorn, uh, the ex-McLaren driver, and Esteban Gutierrez, the ex-Sauber um, driver and fellow um, Mexican with Sergio, Sergio Perez. Uh, van Dorn was committed, unfortunately, to Formula E, and he was away in that bubble, so it would be wrong and not safe to take him out of that bubble. So, unfortunately, Van Dorn was not an option. Esteban Gutierrez was brought to the track. Um, however... They did feel at Racing Point that it made more sense to bring back a driver who had previously driven for that team before, um, as you say, uh, Tom, back when it was Force India, uh, this is the case this time. So Holt knew the team and engineers well. He was still a competitive driver, really. He's only 
missed, I think, if before the British Grand Prix, he'd only missed three races, and, and plus the Barcelona testing, if you think about it, because of um, the situation with coronavirus, there was the season didn't start when planned. So technically, he's only missed three races at this point, and obviously all the pre-season training. Um, but he did drive um, 78 Grand Prix for Force India. So this is someone who knows the team really, really well. Um, Hulk was then contacted... Um, by the team as early as 3pm on that Thursday. Obviously, the world had no idea. We didn't. I don't think we even knew about Sergio's uh, negative res uh, positive result at that point. But he was contacted around 3pm and he was actually away going to do co uh, commentary elsewhere on the race. And I think he was also doing some test driving abroad. So he quickly got on a plane and he landed in England by 7pm. He went straight to the Racing Point factory, which, as many know, is across the road from Silverstone. So quite fortunate that that was the case. And he took a COVID-19 test, which came out OK. He then went on. on um, he then underwent car and seat fittings until around 2 a.m. So this was a very extensive and tiring process for him in order to get into the car. He was up then very, very early the following morning for time on the simulator because Obviously, he hadn't had that pre-season practice or those past three races to be used to the car. And, you know, for this is, um, Formula One puts a huge strain on the drivers. It is a, the physical forces that are put upon their bodies is a lot. And so even for someone who had only missed, um, as I said, three races in, in a period of training, it would have a huge impact on his body. And he did actually say later on uh, the pressures on his neck being uncomfortable. Um, but he needed to get used to being in a car. So we worked on the simulator in the early hours of Friday morning. Before he was allowed to enter the paddock um, on Friday, he had to then do another COVID-19 test just to make sure. And the outcome was actually not revealed until 10 minutes before FP1. So this was the point then when the rumours were, were spreading around and people were certain on, on Friday morning. I remember we even discussed it in our group chat that it would be it possibly going to be Hulkenberg. There was people that cited him in the paddock, but it wasn't confirmed until about 10 minutes before the beginning of free practice. Um, where he had his, his negative result, which means he was allowed to race, and he came dashing out in a Racing Point suit, Racing Point t-shirt, and into the garage to get ready. It seemed very rushed, but um, they made it, so that is that was really good. Um, he did have some comfort issues during um, the practices um, in his car. I think he was a little bit uncomfortable in his seat. Um, but on a whole, it was a really successful three practices um, for Hulkenberg, um, considering he'd been away from the sport. in. FP1, he was ninth. Uh, in FP2, he actually came seventh, and that was ahead of Max Verstappen, Sebastian Vettel, and Lando Norris. And in FP3, he came ninth. So some really solid um, results there in, in the times um, in practice. Unfortunately, Quali wasn't quite as successful. He was in 13th at the end of Quali, uh, so due to line up in 13th on the grid uh, alongside Daniel Kvyat, but still pretty good considering he'd been away for so long. However, as it neared... 2pm on race day, it emerged that there were problems in the Racing Point garage and when all of the cars drove out of the pits about 20 minutes before the race start and onto the grid, Hulkenberg was not among them. Uh, there were suggestions and rumours that he may have to start from the pits, um, but he would still get to start the race. However, a drivetrain seizure had occurred in his car and at 2.03pm it was confirmed that he would not be competing in the British Grand Prix. What a roller coaster four days for him. You've got to feel for him. It is particularly a shame, I feel, because 
so many people, um, and, and ourselves included, suggested that this may be the race that could have provided Hulkenberg with that opportunity to finally get that first podium that he'd been chasing his whole career. Racing Point, as we know, is one of the quickest cars on the grid behind the Mercedes cars, and this could have truly been an opportunity for him to succeed and to achieve that that all-time dream of his. There um, is a chance that he may be able to compete again next week in the 70th anniversary Grand Prix, depending on the length of the self-isolation period that is imposed on Sergio Perez. And we're still uh, waiting to hear updates on that. So I feel, you know, fingers crossed for him in a way. I'd love to see Hulkenberg get out back out on that track and see if he can get that podium. Um, so I have a couple of questions for you guys. Um, Firstly, do you think he was the right choice uh, to be Racing Point stand-in driver when they did have, um, you know, a couple of other options? And also, um, if he is able to race this weekend, do you think he'll be able to get that podium? Do I believe he was the right choice? The, the romantic in me says absolutely yes. It was it was uh, destiny that he was going to come back and get that podium. But yeah, sadly, in the end, didn't even get the chance to uh, didn't even get the chance to try for it. To be fair, to be fair, it would have been unlikely for him to get the podium from thirteenth place on the grid. It would have been an incredible drive if he had. But yeah, I'd, I can see the logic for why um, perhaps the Mercedes, so the Mercedes reserve drivers who are available to Racing Point, and those are uh, Esteban Gutierrez and Stoffel Van Dorn, uh, both, again, with experience from Formula One in previous years. But I think Hulkenberg, because of his relationship with the team in the past, he raced for them from 2014 to 2016 I think on top of my head and the fact that the fact he was it was it was quite lucky that he was available because he was like you said Liv he was going to do some like TV commentary or something like that so it was it was very convenient that he was available but yeah I think in terms of like experience the guy's got plenty of it so I think he definitely was the right choice in terms of can he get the podium this weekend Mate, mm, I can't see it myself because the racing. I mean, the racing point was rapid in practice. Lance Stroll topped FP two, but then it sort of fell off as the weekend went by. Can anyone give a good reason why Racing Point wasn't particularly competitive when Mercedes were? Bear in mind that it's basically the same car as last year, and Mercedes were competitive then. Well, I hear there's an investigation going on from Racing Point on their own car and the data they've got from this Grand Prix as to why that's happened. My understanding is they currently don't know why it's not been, or the car wasn't as successful as it had been in the past and was so far away from the Mercedes. I have my suspicions that it's because Lance Stroll was in the car and he's not that great a driver, but um, that's my personal preference, not, da- not, uh, not backed up by any statistical data or evidence. Because um, if they can work that one out, I think that Hulkenberg could absolutely challenge for the, the podium because it, it could well be Mercedes, Mercedes, Mer- I mean Racing Point. And <laughs> as Stroll was not so brilliant in this current race, as he sort of took a stroll towards the back end of the grid. And I think that absolutely answers the question whether or not I think that they picked the right driver. Absolutely I do. And I would love Hulkenberg to go flying past the Renaults that ejected him out of the sport because... What what better way to have a small renaissance in the sport than to, to jump into a competitive car, which not many other drivers get to do, and then take your first podium? 
I think the Nico Hulkenberg was definitely the best choice. The only choice I personally would have had ahead of him would be someone like Stoffel Van Dorn, but that's purely my opinion because I think that he's a quality driver and he wasn't given a fair crack at the whip with McLaren, but I digress. Um, he was definitely the right choice. As we say, it would have been excellent for him to obtain this podium he's been seeking for so long, um, but as we say, it was never really going to be likely. But I think really... The next race for Hulkenberg, because he wasn't able to race this last weekend, his mission for this race is to save his Formula 1 career, because if he doesn't have a good race, he doesn't finish in the top 10, and he doesn't wow and impress his former employees, his current employees, and maybe his future employees, then he's going to be out of the sport, I think, permanently. We've said he's 32 years old. That's getting towards the end of a Formula 1 career in terms of age. Of course there's time to go. Kimi Raikkonen is 40 years old and he's racing. So it's not done and dusted. But realistically, if he doesn't perform well in the next race that he races in, if he races indeed, then I think it's over. So if I were him, or anyone who's close to him, anybody who cares about his interest going forward, it would be forget about the podium, just make sure you finish in the top 10 and have a solid race, if you race indeed. It's utterly heartbreaking that he wasn't able to race. This means now he's only got one chance. He's only got one shot, so he's going to make it count. What opportunity comes once in a lifetime, yo. <laughs> Good. The 40-year-old Kimi Raikkonen has raced in Formula 1 for 17 years for five different teams and has won one world championship. While undoubtedly an exceptional driver, the Finn, however, is yet to secure a single point in 2020 after four races. Tristan, has the 40-year-old just been unlucky so far this season, or is this world-class driver finally showing his age on a very young, hungry and inexperienced grid? Well, thanks for the quick history lesson there. We're about to go much more into depth on that because some might argue that Kimi Raikkonen's been a little bit unlucky his entire F1 career so far. Kimi Raikkonen, colloquially known as the Iceman, leapt into F1 as a driver for Sauber back in 2001. In 2002, he joined McLaren Mercedes and by 2003 had made a mark on the sport by coming runner-up to Michael Schumacher in the 2003 season. In 2005, he beat names such as Michael Schumacher and Juan Pablo Montoya, coming in second place again, losing out to Fernando Alonso by just 19 points. However, this period of time for Kimi Raikkonen wasn't particularly great, as the McLaren Mercedes car had a multitude of technical and reliability issues, resulting in Kimi jumping ships to Ferrari in 2007. This proved to be a great move, as in 2007, things finally went Kimi's way, as he won the World Championship. This season was fantastic to watch as Kimi beat both Lewis Hamilton and Fernando Alonso by just one point, with Hamilton and Alonso ending the World Championship in second place with 109 points and Raikkonen winning on 110. Ah, oh, wouldn't we love to see that kind of finish today? Hmm. We can only dream. Kimi Raikkonen's achievements wouldn't just be winning the 2007 World Championships though, as he gained a reputation for getting the most out of the car perhaps best demonstrated by Kimi matching Michael Schumacher for the greatest number of fastest laps in a single season, which still holds. The number is 10, just in case you wanted to know what Hamilton will be going for this year. However, all that would come to an end in 2009, as Kimi left Ferrari and the sport, with his Ferrari F60 car being very uncompetitive that season. 
But just like we found with Fernando Alonso this year, Kimi boomeranged back into the sport in 2012, taking a seat at Lotus. In the Lotus, Kimi was yet again able to get the most out of the car and was able to beat drivers such as Lewis Hamilton and Jensen Button by coming in third place. Within the season, Kimi also secured the only victories for Lotus, ensuring that the Lotus came in fourth in the Constructors' Championship. Kimi stayed in Lotus until 2013, until he traded the iconic black and gold livery for the Scuderia Red once again and announced that he was returning back to Ferrari. This is when things went a little bit more downhill for Kimi. In the 2014, 15, 16 and 17 season, although he secured 26 podiums and two pole positions for the prancing horses in that time, he never won a single race. In fact, his dry spell would continue late into the 2018 season until the USA Grand Prix when Kimi finally took home the first place trophy. To highlight, however, how good Kimi was, even when driving the poor performing Ferrari car, Kimi was able to take home fourth position in 2015 and 2017, and third position in 2018, and that's the Drivers' Championship. By late 2018, the rumour mongers were mongering that Ferrari were done with Raikkonen. Not only did they favour Vettel to challenge Hamilton for the World Championship, but a young rookie driver named Charles Leclerc looked to be sh a shining star for the future. In 2018, the inevitable happened, and in a press release that was a shock to no one, Ferrari announced that they were not renewing Kimi's contract, with the Ferrari seat going to Charles Leclerc. And that was it. Kimi left the sport as quietly and calmly as he entered it, is what I would say if behind the scenes Kimi the Iceman Raikkonen hadn't been doing his own negotiations. In a stroke of luck, in 2018, the Sauber F1 team partnered with Alfa Romeo to create the Alfa Romeo Racing Team. Alfa Romeo then decided, with Charles Leclerc moving to Ferrari, that they wanted Kimi to drive their car for the 2019 season. In the Alfa Romeo, Kimi continued to do surprisingly well, coming in 12th in the 2019 season overall. When asked about how he felt about remaining in the sport, he said this. It's more like a hobby for me, so obviously I don't need to do it if I don't want. So clearly, Kimi sees racing as more of a hobby and is not really challenging for the title. So now, as we come into the 2020 season so far, this year is going less than brilliantly for him. In the first race in Austria, Kimi failed to finish the race after his front right wheel came off the car due to the wheel nut not being tightened on it enough. In the Styrian Grand Prix, Kimi came in 11th place. In the Hungarian Grand Prix, he came in 15th place. And finally, in last week's British Grand Prix, Kimi could only manage 17th, with only those who did not finish the race coming in behind him. So apart from the anomaly of the tyre incident in the opening Austrian Grand Prix, this poor performance can be mostly put down to the uncompetitive nature of the Alpha car this year. Alfa Romeo is powered by Ferrari engines, and these engines are lacking in horsepower. In fact, if you want to hear more of that, take a listen to our first podcast. Furthermore, as Alfa is a bit lacking in the aero department, this has resulted in Kimi currently sitting on zero points. So for a man that is currently doing the sport for a hobby, this might well spell the end for Kimi in Formula 1 as I don't really see why he would stay in a sport if he's just going to poodle on round the back. So what do we think? Will Kimi stay in the sport, or will this be a great time for him to leave? 
Or do you think he could change teams, moving to someone like Williams, who could do with a good driver to replace George Russell when he eventually moves to Mercedes? And Kimi Räikkönen could help develop the team further. What do we think? I don't think that he's awful, and I don't think that he's like bad, but I just think now that his time has come, and I don't think that the teams who are con- more and more these days looking forward into the future would bring on a driver of his age and wisdom and experience, of course, too. Um, but yeah, talking about um, the fact that he calls it a hobby, I think we should think about that word for a second. For me, I don't know about yourself, but a hobby is something that I would enjoy. It's something that I enjoy doing in my spare time. And so you've got to really think about whether this is actually enjoyable for him at the moment. You know, he hasn't been out of Q1 yet in qualifying and his race results have been pretty poor. Um, is this you know, losing is not enjoyable for racing drivers. They're naturally competitive human beings and losing and performing poorly and uh, having poor race results again and again and again to me would not result in joy, in happiness. And therefore, is that a hobby? Is it actually a chore? Um, If he says he doesn't want to do it for the money and all of that stuff, then it should all be about the enjoyment. And therefore, should he be still continuing is kind of the way I'm looking at it. I think he's a great guy. I think that what I mean, I was about to say what a character, you know what I mean. He's not a loud character, but he brings his own special personality to Formula One. And I think he's done a brilliant job over the years. So I as I mentioned, I don't see teams that are forward thinking, planning for the future, hiring someone at forty years of age and putting them in giving them a seat. It's a difficult one with Kimmy because he even in recent surveys that have been done, he is the most popular Formula One driver. His Iceman personality, his sort of carefree demeanour is so, some of the reasons why we love him so much. And it would be very sad to see him depart the sport, but I think maybe his time has come. He's already established his reputation as one of the best around over the last decade or two. I don't feel he's doing himself any bit of benefits at all by trundling around in 15th, 16th place in that Alfa Romeo. I think it would serve the team as well better to promote like another promote a young driver into that seat um, rather than have, whilst they have someone with Kimi's experience, if you think of the impact that Charles Leclerc had in his first season with the team back in 2018 and what that's led to for him, I think it'd be worth Alfa Romeo taking a gamble on a, one of the other Ferrari young drivers, uh, the ones in F2 such as Robert Schwartzman, uh, Callum Eilat or Mick Schumacher so I think that we could be seeing the last of Kimi Räikkönen in Formula 1 sadly. Yeah I definitely agree with Angus on this point I think it was all good and rosy when Kimi Räikkönen first went to Alfa Romeo he was sort of dragging the team up and making the car perform better than it perhaps otherwise would be able to with someone like Giovinazzi and with a less experienced driver However, now we're seeing Alfa Romeo firmly within the fight for the wooden spoon to be back of the pack. And Kimi's in danger here that if he doesn't leave at the end of this reduced 2020 season, he's going to taint his own fantastic record on track. I don't think his record, his his aura, his reputation off track is ever going to be changed. But on track, he wants to be remembered as the guy that won a world championship, not to be remembered as the guy who couldn't stop the rot at Alfa Romeo, who was kicked out because he was too slow, and ultimately somebody who didn't know enough was enough and it was time to hang up his gloves, so to speak. Therefore, I think ultimately Kimi goes at the end of the season or he gets pushed because Giovinazzi isn't good enough, in my opinion, to be 
a a leader of the, the the pack a leader of alfa romeo they need somebody in there who can add experience to the team help build an excellent car help with the chassis aerodynamics all of that good stuff but also somebody who can perform on the track and do what kimi could do last season in my opinion therefore you promote someone or should i say you get somebody like sergio perez it looks likely he's going to be leaving uh, racing point or should i say kicked out or someone like hulkenberg two drivers who have got great experience battling in the midfield i've argue previously that Sergio Perez is unlucky not to have had a chance or a sustained chance by his stint at McLaren with a top team and I think he is the person that Alfa Romeo need in order for them to get out or to separate themselves from the fight for the wooden spoon which is currently remaining in the hands of Haas and Williams at the moment. So before, before we end this podcast I wanted to just voice one more thought very very quickly and that was did Ferrari make a mistake losing Raikkonen and keeping Vettel it all depends on what Ferrari wanted to be honest because if you want a number two driver and someone who's going to obey orders without question so to speak Kimi Raikkonen's your man but if you want somebody who's actually going to compete properly at the the front of the grid and win races the record shows you go for Vettel because given some hindsight here we have found that Leclerc is de facto the number one driver for Ferrari and unfortunately was very competitive with Vettel in the last season and so perhaps Ferrari would have been better off keeping Raikkonen who could extract a lot out of the car and let's face it made less mistakes than Vettel did I would mm, is it, I'd say that it's, it's ironic that you raised the point of what if Ferrari wanted a number one and a number two I think them wanting a number one and a number two is probably why they went for the clerk in the first place. Um, they thought he would be number two to Vettel, but ironically, we've seen now how the tables have turned so much in that respect. But I don't think they were wrong to to keep Sebastian Vettel as opposed to Kimi Raikkonen. Vettel was only 31 at the time, and you would have presumed he was on a bit of a down slope in terms of form, but you would have presumed that a four-time world champion may have been reinvigorated by the challenge of a new driver a new young driver alongside him, so, and that that would be a ben- of more benefit, I suppose, to a 39-year-old Kimi Räikkönen uh, still being in the team. So I'd say it was the right decision to go for Vettel ahead of Räikkönen. And so ends another episode of F1 in Review. Thank you very much, dear listener, for sticking with us through this episode and through a variety of different topics. First of all, we spoke about the ties, the Pirelli ties, which caused so much controversy and talking points regarding what happened on the last few laps in the tents of Mercedes and McLaren. Secondly, we talked about Max Verstappen and Red Bull Racing. Did they lose the race? Did they throw the race? Did they miss an opportunity? Did they do exactly as they thought they would do? We're a bit divided here, or in any case, I'm on my own on this one. And thirdly, Hulkenberg, the return that never was. He qualified 13th, he was set to race on Sunday in the Racing Point car, returning to his former employers, but it wasn't meant to be. The car plainly didn't start. And finally, we've spoken about Kimi Raikkonen, the 40-year-old Finn, the one-time world champion, but he hasn't got a single point in 2020. Is it time that Kimi Raikkonen hung up his gloves for a final time? Or has he got one more year and a couple of races left in him? 
Thank you very much for listening. We'll be returning next week to speak about the second British Grand Prix as part of this unique, bizarre, and very, very interesting 2020 Formula One calendar. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you later. See you later, alligators. In a while, crocodile.